Well, this morning we're going to look at John chapter 2, the account where Jesus turns the water into wine, our Lord's first miracle. We read in the chapter verse 11, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And uh, this is a... Uh, Awesome account. In fact, all the miracles uh, that are uh, given in the Word of God um, cause us to reflect upon the uh, awesomeness of God and what He can do. Put a little insert in your bulletin this morning on um, the miracles of Christ. He didn't perform His miracles haphazardly. They're all done for a purpose. And uh, the ultimate purpose is to glorify the Lord and to show his awesomeness as God the Son. We'll talk about this. But the um, reasons for the miracles of Christ are listed four points in your insert sheet. The physical healings of Jesus are there to establish his credentials as the true promised Messiah. The Old Testament scripture says when the Messiah comes, you'll know him because he will heal the sick, he'll raise the dead, and these other things which he will do. It showed his genuine compassion. Uh, it's, it's interesting how many of the miracles you read and the text says, and the Lord had compassion upon him, or the Lord had compassion upon her. And his compassion was very real. Um, in Matthew's gospel, he talks about Jesus looking out on the multitudes. They were sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion upon them. <laughs> I have through the years, <coughs> pardon me, talked to some individuals who said, you know, I don't have the compassion that I should have for those who do not know Christ or even compassion for those with needs. Because sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, this person has needs because of what they've done in their life and experience. But you know, Jesus, our Savior, had genuine compassion for those he healed. And he had compassion on the multitudes who did not know him as Savior and Lord. So in number one, he established his credentials as the true Messiah. Number two, he showed his genuine compassion. Number three, these things look forward to the millennial kingdom. And during the millennial kingdom, there will not be sickness and death. And that will be on the earth for a thousand years. And then number four illustrates the fact that Jesus heals spiritually. And of course, the one that's so clear in Scripture, the fact that uh, Jesus raised the lame man from the dead, and before he did, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And uh, the critics said, what's, what's he doing forgiving sins? Because they did not recognize Jesus as God the Son. So Jesus says, In order that you might understand that the Son of Man has power on earth, to forgive sins, I say to him, rise up and walk. <laughs> and he rose up and he walked. They still didn't believe. There are multitudes of people who, they want to see a miracle, they want to see something done uh, that will help them believe. But I like what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even though someone rises from the dead. Very important, very important. 
So now we're going to put a little focus on this uh, John chapter 2, uh, beginning of signs of Jesus. And it was a miracle. And uh, I think one of the things we should do is uh, establish the fact that we need to be careful how we use the term miracle. Sometimes it's used rather loosely. I can uh, think of someone saying, well, I um, walked across Main Street and it was a miracle that I got across. <laughs> Technically speaking, that's not a miracle. <laughs> um, real miracles are events that break the laws of nature and require God's direct action. So there's two parts to a real miracle. There's the setting aside of the laws of nature and there's the intervention of God either directly or indirectly. I like Chuck Swindoll's definition. I've given it before. He puts it this way. A miracle is a supernatural intervention of God in which he interrupts natural laws. Remember, that's one power of it. For his own sovereign purposes. He has purposes and reasons that he performs miracles. And again, when you study a chapter like this, or when you look at any of the miracles of Christ, People ask the question, does the Lord perform miracles today? I think you know the answer to that. It's not his normal procedure, but he does intervene in hearts and lives, and he can perform tremendous miracles even today. Well, the account begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 of John. On the third day, the Apostle John is making reference to the time when Jesus left Judea and uh, was going up into the area of Galilee. And it was approximately a two-day walk there. And the account says, and there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, it's interesting that Jesus goes to this wedding. It says a lot. It really does. It says more than the average person just reading the text would comprehend. Um, weddings in the Middle East were very different, especially in that day, than the weddings that occur in our country today. In the Middle East, the um, focus of the wedding was on the groom. And if they would have sung in that day, they would have said, here comes the groom. <laughs> today, in our country, the focus is on the bride, and the music goes, here comes the bride. Now that is very uh, important that we comprehend this to try to understand some of the things that go on here. Uh, in Middle Eastern countries, not only was the groom the featured person, but also he paid for the whole wedding. And there's a lot of dads wish that culture could come over to here. In America. Jesus' presence at the wedding. I mean, it's a joyful occasion. It really is. You've, we've all been to weddings. Every one of us. We've been to weddings and we enjoy being there. We, our hearts go out to encouragement. We pray for the bride and groom. Uh, we're, we're just so thankful that God brought them together. Uh, we're happy for them, and usually there's a uh, reception afterwards. It's just a time of joy, and Jesus entered into this time of joy, although a need did arise. But um, Christ's presence at this wedding, 
again, uh, shows us the importance of his affirmation of a wedding. In fact, we've described uh, a wedding based on Scripture. Marriage is the covenant of companionship made between a man and a woman who live together as husband and wife so long as they both shall live. Now, we understand, and we're not going to go into all the details of uh, how sometimes uh, marriages are broken up and uh, the divorce issues. Um, this is a, a very painful for anyone who goes through it. And uh, people who go through it need our support. They need our prayer. Um, they need our understanding. Uh, even people who have been through a divorce understand that God intended for man and woman to be together for life. That was God's intention, as Jesus states in Matthew chapter 19. So I'm going to give that definition again. Marriage is not just a piece of paper, which you may hear people say, oh, it's just a piece of paper. You ought to be able to come back immediately and say, no, it's not just a piece of paper. It's a covenant decision made before God and man. It's a covenant decision that's made between a man and a woman. Not a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Okay? You can mark that down in your thinking too. It's not a, it's not a marriage. God defines marriage. The Supreme Court of the United States does not define marriage. Very important. So therefore, when there is some kind of a ceremony between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, I know this sounds harsh. It's not a wedding. The original wedding ceremony is given in Genesis chapter 2. And I want to read the two verses that are mentioned right after you have God bringing the woman to the man. In 2.24 of Genesis, it says, Therefore shall a man, masculine, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There's four elements that are given in that truth, in that truth passage. First one is separation. That when a man and a woman get married, they become set apart from their parents. A man and a woman shall leave his a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. So there's a new family unit. Secondly, there's a bonding and shall be joined to his wife. There's a uniting. It's the act of the will. This is what we desire to do before God. There's a oneness, and they will become one flesh. And uh, probably most of us as adults understand that uh, bringing together of a man and a woman, becoming one flesh before God, that uniqueness, the act of marriage that puts that uniqueness upon that relationship. And then lastly, there's intimacy. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And, of course, in a Christian marriage, it's because they understand that God has brought them together. So at this wedding, uh, Jesus and the disciples uh, were invited, and Mary. And we read verse 3, and they ran out of wine. 
And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now wine, of course, was the staple, S-T-A-P-L-E, drink of that day. In that culture and in that climate, there was obviously no refrigeration or purification process like we have today. So the fruit juice would ferment easily. However, what they would do in that day to avoid the risk of drunkenness, they would dilute the wine with water. Some of you have heard this before. One-third to one-tenth water was added to the wine. Please don't think that the people at the event had a lot to drink and then Jesus went and came along and gave them a wine that would put them under. It's not going to happen. Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. He doesn't do that. Now the scriptures are very clear that the Bible does not forbid drinking wine, but it definitely in many places condemns drunkenness. And that we need to realize this. In fact, we need to always be careful of what we do with regards to food and drink. Romans 14.21 says, It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is to make weak. So uh, we need to understand that we have a responsibility in our eating and our drinking that we have to have a testimony before God in relationship to others. So this passage is not a passage to appeal to, uh, to settle the issue of drinking wine. I, I am going to repeat myself. The wine was diluted in that day. You can check it out. Get your Bible background books out. And also, Jesus would not bring something or create something to be in the event to allow people to become drunken. Very, very important. Now, this was a major crisis for the family, and um, the statement was made, they have no wine. There was a genuine need here. And so uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, probably... She wasn't expecting a miracle from Jesus. He hadn't performed any miracles up to this time. I believe uh, probably at this time that Joseph, her husband, had passed away. And so she's going to Jesus, as she probably has done on other occasions, to refer to him, to get wisdom from him. But Jesus responds and he says, now in the NIV and in the King James, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now that term woman there is not a term of disrespect. Okay? It sounds like it in the English, but it's not a term of disrespect. What the Lord is doing, the Lord Jesus is doing, he's causing Mary to understand that their relationship is changing. That Mary's going to be relating to Jesus now, not only as the one who was born through her, but also he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's her Savior. In fact, there's a passage um, where Jesus refers to God, my Savior. She recognizes she is not sinless, and she needs a Savior from sin. 
Well, the Lord Jesus responds when she asks him to um, understand that the wi- the wine is gone. Uh, he says, "My hour has not yet come." What hour? The hour of revealing Himself as the promised Messiah, promised in the Old Testament scriptures, and probably that's what Mary wanted Jesus to do. This is a time now to let people know that you are the one who came from heaven. And, and came to give your life, and you're the Messiah of Israel. But Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to reveal fully my Messiahship. However, she goes on and she says to the servants, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. <laughs> she, she recognizes that he has authority, okay? And uh, that's a very important phrase, by the way. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, we've discussed many times in the past how the Lord speaks to us. And the more you mature spiritually, the more you understand that the Lord does speak to you and he asks you to do certain things for him, right? For his glory. And you, you develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit or to the Lord speaking to you. And I guess the question is, we need to continually ask ourselves, am I ready to do what God wants me to do? She said, whatever he says to you, do it. Am I ready? Well, is there a sin in my life that shouldn't be there? And one of the things that we do before we partake of communion is to make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord and we confess sin. Is there something in my life that shouldn't be there? I should confess it and forsake it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Also... Is there a broken relationship? We're living in a world where there's great strain in the relationships of life. You will talk to people, perhaps in your own family, who say, you know, there's tremendous strain in the relationship. Well, the question is, what does God want me to do uh, to heal that strain in relationship? Maybe forgiveness is necessary. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Or, remembering what she said, whatever he says to you, you do it. I ask myself the question, is there a service opportunity, something the Lord might want me to do for him? Is he speaking to me about teaching a class, about witnessing to someone, about ministering to someone? Whatever he says to you, we want to be doing as believers. Very important. Well, quickly, there were six jars of water, the kind that are used for ceremonial cleansing uh, by the Jews. They were used for the washing of hands, and they were empty jars. And, of course, the, the, the beauty of this passage is Jesus changed the water in those jars to wine. And uh, there are many who feel that the empty jars, which were filled with water and then changed with uh, into wine... Uh, are symbolic of the fact that there's a lot of empty religion when Christ is not in it. And uh, Jesus said, fill them to the brim. And he said, fill them to the brim so uh, the servants wouldn't have any doubt that Jesus was the one who changed the water into wine. And so we say, and as a result of this awesome mater- uh, event that is given here, we say that, uh, this was a miracle of transformation. Jesus changed the water into wine. And uh, when the master of the feast 
had tasted the water made into wine, he said to the bridegroom, he said, usually a host serves the best wine first. Then after everybody's full, he serves the cheaper, less expensive wines. But you have saved the best until now. Awesome what Jesus Christ can do. It's awesome what he does in his transformation. The significance of the miracle, verse 11 again, two things. First of all, it shows the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows him to be the creator. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, they were starting to see who he was with this first miracle. He's God the Son. He's the creator. And uh, the purpose of that miracle was to reveal who Jesus Christ really was. Secondly, the text says his disciples believed in him. They had heard John the Baptist. They had heard the words of Jesus. But now, firsthand, they're witnesses to a miracle given by Jesus. And their faith is confirmed. They believed in him. In fact, it's so interesting to see that John in his gospel, he selects seven miracles. They're all designed to point to the glory of Christ. They're all designed and given for a purpose. But at the end of the book, John writes this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. You know, we this morning who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are blessed to know that we understand what God has done through Christ as we celebrated at the table this morning. But there are multitudes of people who have heard about Christ who still don't believe. We probably, all of us, know somebody who doesn't believe. And what's the destiny of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ? Eternal hell. Eternal separation from God. And we mentioned earlier the fact that, yes, Christ performed miracles, but still some people won't believe. They won't believe in him. I think of a neighbor that I have, not far down the street, and I've had the high privilege of talking to him on a number of occasions, and he still doesn't believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for his sins and was buried, and he rose again. Thank the Lord that you believe in Jesus Christ. So the significance of the miracle, it's, shown, it's given rather to show or manifest the glory of the Lord. The daily bread devotional, some of you use it this morning, talks about the glory of God and how we can enter into and appreciate the glory of God as those who know the Lord. The second thing to keep in mind in relationship to this miracle is the fact that um, the water changed into wine produced joy in the midst of this wedding celebration. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in his ministry is going to bring joy to multitudes of people. There's going to be all kinds of miracles that are performed by Jesus. And joy is going to be the result of this. Likewise, we have joy in our hearts. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. <clears throat> the next thing we keep in mind when we think of this miracle, the changing the water to wine, is that this was a miracle of transformation. 
a radical change took place. And by the way, a radical change took place in our lives when we trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We went from sinners to becoming saints. We went from lost to being found. We went from being blind to being able to see the Lord and His glory and what life is all about. It was a ministry of transformation. Jesus Christ has the power uh, to transform people's lives. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. I want to think of this last aspect of contemplation on John chapter 2, that this was a miracle of transformation. We see the power of Christ and we ask ourselves the question, um, what can Christ do today to change lives? Oh, he can do awesome things in his own power because of who he is. And as we continue to see Christ in the scriptures, we ourselves are changed. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Please keep this in mind. The more you spend time in the Word of God, the more you see the beauty of Christ in the Word of God, the more He's going to speak to your heart and life and allow you to desire the change in your life that will ultimately please Him. He's a God who makes changes. This was a transforming miracle. And we need to ask ourselves the question, and you can do, you can pause on this after looking at this portion of Scripture and say, yeah, Jesus Christ has the power to transform and to change. What would I want Him to change in my life today? What would I like for Him to change in my life? Let's pause in prayer together.